Kindly turn to Romans 9. And today we will be looking at uh, uh, verse 27, 28, and 29. And one more sermon, then we will be done with chapter 9 as we journey through this uh, wonderful letter to the Romans. Romans 9, let me read from verse 1 to, uh, to verse 29, uh, rather to verse 20, yes, to 29. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had, not, uh, 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 had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told. The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man? To answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the porter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory? For vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left his offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become 
like Gomorrah. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's turn to him in prayer. Lord, we look to you to bless your word. Bless it, Lord, for our hearing and our receiving. And grant that, Lord, we will be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that we may be conformed to the likeness of your Son, Christ. Oh, pour your spirit upon each one of us, O oh Lord. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know that uh, war has broken out in, uh, between uh, Israel and Gaza. The Hamas group in the Gaza Strip attacked Israel this last week. At least 250 Israelis have been killed by last night and over 1,500 wounded. And a significant number kidnapped, including officers and rank and file soldiers. 22 villages were initially overrun, two cities and one major military camp invaded. Hamas group began the attack with massive salvos of rockets under cover of which they blew holes through border fences and walls. Immediately, the Israeli government declared a state of war and put the country under special alert. As a result of these retaliatory attacks, led to about 230 Palestinians in the Gaza Strip being killed by the Israeli soldiers. Many major buildings in Gaza have been flattened by the rockets from Israeli defense forces. And the question is, how should we pray for them? When I got those news from my friend Baruch Meos, a retired pastor who labored for decades in Israel, my response was, we are praying for the peace of Israel. May peace attend her gates. We trust that sovereign ruler of the universe who is ever wise will intervene for the sake of his great name and for the sake of his, of his elect in Israel and in Palestine and in Gaza. We know that the Lord knows what he is doing for his church even through this breach of peace. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. That's not a dispensational thinking, is it? Dispensationalism and fundamentalism will tell you you only pray for the Jews. But I tell you, you pray for the elect, whether they are across the borders of Israel or they are in Gaza. We pray for them. Because we know that God has his people in every place, doesn't he? You know that uh, dispensationalism and fundamentalism erroneously popularize the Israel church distinction, which is constantly refuted by the passage before us. For example, we've already established from verse 24 that even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. The point is that God's calling is both from among the Jews and from the Gentiles. If that were not so, there would be no Trinity Baptist Church. There would be no church anywhere else other than in Palestine. The point is that God's calling is both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. Israel of God is greater than ethnic Israel or the Palestine. In fact, there are more Jews in diaspora than in Palestine. Exactly what the Lord said that he will scatter them across the earth. And the point is that God calls they elect in the same way, by the grace of his son, Jesus Christ, through the redemption which is by his blood. Clearly, there is 
one way of salvation both for the Jews and for the Gentiles. For there is one calling, for we, are, for we were called to one hope that belongs to our call. One Father, one Lord, one baptism. The fact is that the Old Testament confirms God's call of Gentiles in verse 25 and 26 that we've already considered in the last sermon. God calls the Jews as well, which is what we are considering today, verse 27 through 29. As we consider these verses, we will establish that God chose chooses only some, not all, from among the ethnic Jews, from among the national Israel to be his people. And therefore, the true spiritual Israel, this is how Paul understood the promises of God to Israel from the Old Testament. And he says, only a remnant will be saved. Only a remnant of them, that is Jews, will be saved, is what we read in verse 27. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What does that mean? Not all who are Israel by birth and blood are the Israel of God. And chapter 11, verse 5 tells us that only a remnant chosen by grace are the Israel of God. Now, in, in case you might be thinking that this is a Pauline doctrine, what does he do? He quotes from the Old Testament. He goes to Hosea. He goes to Isaiah. And twice he cites prophet Isaiah. And you know that uh, prophet Isaiah is especially uh, highly regarded by the ethnic Jews. That evangelical prophet. So what we see then here is that only a remnant will be saved. And this is attested by prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. The Bible says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. So first of all, then notice it was written by prophet Isaiah. When the Bible says about or speaks about this, cries out, uh, that verb of what the prophet did, believe it or not, is in the present tense. It's a continuous tense. Isaiah still cries out now, of course, through the pages of scripture. What the Lord spoke and Isaiah wrote 800 years before the coming of Christ is just as relevant today when there is all this bombing and deaths and kidnapping happening in Palestine. This is the reason I preach it to you. To cry out is to scream with a loud voice. And this is not some mumbling or whispers but a lifting up of the voice because what is being said is so important. It needs to be heard when, within the gates of Israel. And why does Isaiah cry out? Because he wants you to know, and especially he wants the Jews to know, as a fellow Jew, what is God doing with Israel? Remember what I just, I just read for you earlier in the chapter? Paul has a great sorrow and unceasing anguish for his brothers, his kinsmen according to the flesh. The cry for the unbelievers must always be heard from the lips of the saints. We are not unmoved or undisturbed by the faithlessness of our generation or our communities, are we? We must be affected since Paul and Isaiah were so affected. Remember Isaiah 62 verse 1, Isaiah says, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet 
until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. This is Isaiah's own cry for the people of Israel. And he says that though the number of the sons of Israel be as the side of a sea, Though they be a great number of Jews in history, though there are millions upon millions of them, there is no doubt that the Lord has greatly multiplied the nation of Israel from when they were in Egypt. Remember how their women did not need any midwife. They just gave birth, and the Lord multiplied them and multiplied them in Egypt until God birthed the nation of Israel in Egypt. And God has never ceased to bless them. And so they've multiplied over the many millenniums of existence as a nation. Yet their number will not be to their advantage, is what the Bible is saying here. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the side of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. There is a simile here. There are two figures of speech in comparing their numbers. The sons of Israel and the sand of the sea are compared. There is also another figure of speech here. There is that simile and then there is the hyperbole or exaggeration. Comparing them to the side of the sea is a number far beyond the number of Jews that would be born. But he is using this exaggeration to make a dramatic impact in our minds. But this is not the first time this is being said. This is actually, Paul has what was written by Moses in mind in Genesis 22, verse 17, where Abraham, uh, after he had offered up, or, or after, uh, when he was going to offer up Isaac, God intervenes, and God, God made this promise that though your descendants will be like the sands of the sea, so God will carry out his promises. Numbers do not overwhelm God. So God knows the number of the hair in your own hand. He does. And God knows the number of those grains of sand in every single beach in the world. Think about that. Numbers do not overwhelm God. God is such a mathematician that he worked out all the physics needed to create the universe and sustain it and all the amount of resources needed to keep the sun burning throughout. God is not overwhelmed by numbers. So he knows the number, the exact number of days and hours and seconds in your life. Though the number of Jews be like the side of the sea, the Bible says, the remnant that will be saved. Not everyone. God never promised to save the entire nation. That was never in the eternal counsel and decree of God. It was never in the eternal purpose of God to save every one of the Jews. God said that there will be a very significant remnant out of the larger number. And the remnant is like, the, uh, like a small nucleus. It's like a tiny island in the midst of an ocean of apostasy of the Israel nation. That there will be a, frag a fragment that God will save. And we pray that God will continue to save. And we know that God is saving such as are described as his remnant. So God's purposes have not failed. And that's what Paul says in verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed.
In fact, God's purposes are right on track, precisely on track, because it is the remnant that will be saved. So here is a clear indication that when Paul quoted Hosea earlier, it was to do with the Gentiles, and now he explicitly quotes Isaiah as a reference to the ethnic Israel. Isaiah cries out concerning the people of Israel, that is the Jews. I need to point out that it's not a small thing that the nation of Israel persisted in rebellion. God sent his word, his law, his prophets, that's what we read. To them belong the adoption, the giving and the receiving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And even from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ himself. They are without excuse. It's not a small thing that they persisted in rebellion. It's not a small thing that the nation of Israel, Israel persisted in their ungodliness. Because you remember, God sent them prophets to plead with them to turn and leave. They would not heed. And yet when God sent one prophet to the pagan nation of Nineveh, of Nineveh, that city, that wicked city, they turned by the preaching of Jonah. And Jonah himself was such a reluctant prophet. And yet they turned. But for Israel, prophet upon prophet. And you remember how the Lord gives that parable of the tenants in Matthew 21? Underscoring, uh, underscoring the fact that uh, God dealt with the people of Israel by sending many prophets as his servants to turn them back to the way of the Lord. But they persisted, they persisted in the apostasy. And then the Lord sent his son to them saying that they will respect his son. But the Bible says, the Lord himself said, when the tenants saw the son, they said, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. This is what they did. And, and then the Lord concludes and says in Matthew 21, 43 to 44, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is a stone that the builders rejected and has become the capstone and the rock of offense to the Jews. When he cites Isaiah's prophecy, Paul underscores the fact that all ethnic Israel will not be destroyed, but a remnant will be saved. It's only a remnant which will be saved. Not none, not all, but some, the remnant. Therefore, the word remnant is both a blessing and a curse for them. It is a blessing to know that there are those who will be saved. And so this gives hope to all to pursue the Lord while he may be found. To come to the Lord and reason together with him. So that though their sin be as red as scarlet, the Lord may make them as white as snow. But it is a curse to know that not all will be saved. For it spells judgment and doom for those who will not be among the remnant. It is this concept that is, that is meant to deal with the complacency and the luxury and laziness of the people of Israel who thought that they did not, it did not matter how they lived. They say, do you not see our blood? It's the holy blood. Our blood is the holy land of the promise. We are in the We now may eat and drink. We may do whatever we can. We may worship the golden calf, we may worship the bell or the asherah. 
The judgment has already been spelled out. Remember verse 22 and 23? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Praise God that his promise is spelled out in ink by the prophet from among the Israelites. And he is the prophet of God and is going to speak the truth. He will not lie. But God cannot change his mind and, and he will destroy them who will not believe in his son. His word will prevail. And then secondly, the remnant will be saved and it is confirmed by God's judgment upon the earth. This is what is cited here from Isaiah. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out a sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. The understanding of the word remnant with the idea of both judgment and hope carried from Isaiah 10, verse 22 and 23, where we read, For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. When Isaiah wrote, he was giving them both a sentence of the Babylonian exile, but he was also them giving the them the hope that they shall return back to the promised land. But then he says, even though that will happen, God's judgment will be carried out. God's judgment of destruction is decreed, overflowing with, with righteousness. The judge of the universe will do that which is right. Because the Lord of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of the earth. What does this mean? When you read that prophecy of Isaiah, you can be tempted to think that this was only to do with then, the matter of Babylonian exile, the return from exile. But you can see that there is a double fulfillment in the prophecy. And uh, uh, if you read the Old Testament, the, the prophecy given has almost always double fulfillment in the immediate con uh, context, but also in the future context. That's what we call the prophetic foreshortening, whereby if you stand, um, if, if you come from a hilly place, uh, you look at the mountain ridges, and uh, you draw your eyes forward, and you see a mountain nearby, and perhaps there might be another one in the background, one by the foreground. That one is the immediate context uh, that the prophet sees. But then, there is also the mountain that is further ahead, but they look as if they are, they've overlapped. But between them, there is a world distance which need to be covered. That, that's the way it is with the, prophet, with, the, with the Old Testament prophets. They give prophecy for the immediate context, but then it had its own fulfillment in the New Testament. That's what you see here. Now, from verse 28, we see that there are three characteristics of, about the judgment of God. Number one, the Bible says, God's judgment shall be full. Number three, and number two, God's judgment will be universal. And number three, God's judgment 
will be without delay. Let's, let's consider each one of them. He says here, in verse 28, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth, how much? Fully. The judgment shall be full. None of his righteous judgments will fail, but it shall all be accomplished. All who observe there is wrath because they do not believe uh, in a son will see and receive his wrath in its fullness. The cup of God's wrath will never be served half. It will be full. No one will serve God's sentence in hell partially. If you are sentenced by God to go to hell, it will not be a 35-year sentence. It will be a sentence that will last eternity. That's very scary, isn't it? Think about being in a hot kitchen with all the windows and doors shut and everything and everyone is sweating. And it's very uncomfortable, isn't it? And there is no hope of turning it off. But then you know that a day, a time will come when you will leave that kitchen. I remember uh, being in a bus from uh, Kisumu to Homabe. And uh, it was a hot day. And there were fishmongers who had their fish in that bus. And we were all packed together with fish. It is hot. And most of the windows were not working. And especially mine was not moving. It was not very interesting. But I had the hope that we'll get to Homerby and I will alight. Now, when you get into God's hell, there won't be anything like this bus will arrive, and I will come out and alight. There will be nothing like that. The darkness is total. The pain is total. The gnashing of teeth is an ending. The worm do not die. The fire is unquenched. The judgment of God is full. You don't want to be caught on that side. You hear that, children? You don't want to go to hell. It's not a good place. Because once you are in hell, there is no coming out. You are in that burning, fiery furnace forever. And then the Bible says here that God's judgment will be universal. It will be upon the earth. His sentence is upon the earth. Fully and without delay. The Lord describes how people will escape to the caves. And the caves would be saying, get out. Go face God's wrath. The caves will not accommodate you to flee from the wrath of God. And there is nowhere where you may run to and be safe away from God's wrath and God's sentence. You notice that it is the Lord himself who will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully. 
No part of the earth, whether among the Jews or among the Gentiles, shall be left without God's judgment because it will be a universal sentence like it was in the days of Noah when the Bible says the flood came. No one will say that he did not hear the gospel. All will be judged in righteousness by the man whom God has appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. You will not be spared. The only way to escape the judgment of God is to flee to the city of refuge, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, and be part of his body, the church. The Lord will keep you. Do not let your foot be moved if you hide in the rock of ages. Jesus Christ. No other way. No other way. Don't try any other way. It won't work. It is a universal judgment. No one will escape. No one will be forgotten. No one will be too young for hell when the sentence of God will come. There will be no affirmative action. None. Those who, uh, who deserve God's sentence will get it universally. And finally, God's judgment will be without delay. It will be without delay. God will not bring his judgment earlier or later. It will not be late. Just as it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, did you know that there were two other cities? Adma and Ziboim? I thought you should know. It, so it, it will be in that day. If a single person from Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zibohim escaped other than Lot. And if it came too late to allow people to escape, no. And this is exactly what you read in verse 29. We would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. God will carry out his judgment <coughs> and destruction exactly as decreed. Yes. Destruction is decreed. And this destruction is overflowing with righteousness. God will show forth both aspects of destruction and righteousness at the same time. The destruction will be carried out thoroughly and completely and decisively and totally to those who are without Christ. But also God's righteousness will be displayed so that there will be justice. For those who are being destroyed. But also there would be righteousness for those who are being saved. The righteousness of his son Jesus Christ. So if you're in Christ you will be safe with his righteousness. You remember when God, God's judgment and wrath fell upon Jericho. And Rahab escaped with her people. Because she heeded the message of the good news. She put that red ribbon on the window of our house. Despite God's judgment on the evil, there is hope that is captured by the promise a remnant will be saved. The certainty of the promise is demonstrated by the fact that it does not say that the remnant may be saved or might be saved. What does it say? then remnant will be saved. That cannot and will not fail to happen. It is sure and certain. God has called us not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, which means that he has built a new society which is comprised of Jews and Gentiles, and he calls them together, his, the Israel of God. Now, the only challenge we have here is that the Jews are not as many 
as had been thought. There are more Gentiles who were formerly strangers to the covenant and the commonwealth of Israel, but are now numbered with God's people. And because God is making in the place of the two, one new man who is in Christ. But this is part of God's judgment upon them as a nation for rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is precisely what the Lord had predicted in Matthew 8, 11, in the context of the faith of the centurion, the faith of a Gentile. What did he say? The Bible says, and this is the Lord himself speaking, I tell you, many will come from the east and from the west and recline a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Who are the sons of the kingdom? The ethnic Jews. And who are the ones who will come from the east and from the west? Us, you and me. And the Lord says that we will recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Those who had been invited as guests are now entering. No, they are not entering really. They would rather not enter. But those who were not invited, those who were not my people, what are they now? They are my beloved. They are my people. They are the sons of the living God. Is what Isaiah says. They are God's beloved. Now we take a step back and ask, but wait a minute. What about the promise of Abraham to be a father of offspring, which will be like the stars of the heavens or the beach sand. Well, what about that? That's Genesis 15 verse 5. It is true that Abraham was promised numerous offspring through Isaac, but this offspring must be taken both as the, uh, uh, as, as the Jews and as the Gentiles because the Bible says that through Abraham... Well, all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12, 3. He was promised that he will be the father of a multitude of nations. Genesis 17, verse 5 and 6. Yet the prophet and the apostles state that out of those vast multitudes, which comprise of their nation, only a remnant of Israel was to be saved. What should be our response? Our response should be to thank God for the remnant saved by grace. That is the last point here. While it seems like Isaiah was only speaking about the Jews' return from the Babylonian exile and nothing more, we know from this quotation by Paul that it was more than that. All the things that happened to the nation of Israel, like the deliverance from Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, the crossing of the River Jordan, the destruction of the, of the people of Jericho, an entrance into Canaan, the promised land, were all pointing to the realities of the gospel age, as we read in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happened to them, the Jews, as an example, but they were written down for our, Paul and the Corinthian church included. It was written for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Amen. In the same way, the deliverance from the Babylonian exile is also a type of the salvation of God's people. One commentator I read, Robert Aldane, rightly points out that, and I quote, the work of God in regard to his church, there being several gradations, who viewed from a distance those future events joined together, many of them as 
if they related only, only to one and the same thing, which is characteristic of the spirit of prophecy. I pointed that earlier. The prophet then, in his place, joins the temporal establishment of the Jews with the spiritual building up of the church of Christ. Although these two things are quite distinct and separate. So the remnant shall return, not just to the maker who created them, or to the lad in Canaan that was promised, but they shall return to eternal salvation, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we pray that the Lord God in his mercy will save Jews. And when we hear of their salvation, we rejoice. This is speaking of conversion. For it says that the remnants shall, be, shall return. They shall be saved. They shall not be saved by the arm of flesh. They shall be saved by the grace of God in His Son, Jesus Christ, who is their Savior too, if they believe in Him. The point is that the promise to Abraham shall be fulfilled, for God is not a man that he should lie. The remnant shall return and be saved. The chosen of God, they let. The vessels of mercy, the vessels of honor, will return from among the ethnic Israel, and they shall be saved by grace. All those within the number of the elect, they shall return, and they shall be saved by the Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ. Jesus will not look at them and say, you carry the blood of Jacob, therefore you shall not be saved. No. If they name the name of Christ, they shall be saved. We rejoice that you have such brothers and sisters in Christ from among the ethnic Israel, like the man I pointed out to you, Baruch Meos and his wife, Bracha. I can barely pronounce her name. And so many others. Uh, Joe Djakovic was here a few years back. Austin Huggins and so many others that we know who are from ethnic Israel. Praise the, the name of the Lord. And there's so many of them. All of the remnants shall truly and fully be saved. Not one shall be left out. All of them shall be saved. When God's judgment and sentence shall be carried out upon the earth, Full and without delay, the remnant from among the Israelites will, exper will experience the fullness of God's blessings. They shall be saved. They shall be saved from their sins and be saved from the wrath of God. Though none shall escape the judgment of God, yet the remnant shall be saved out of it. And they shall be saved by God through his Son. And you know, salvation of the remnants shall be by grace alone. It shall not be by any other means. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, what does that mean? It means that it depended not on their blood. It depended on the Lord of hosts. Not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. It depends on God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. By grace, the remnant will be saved. Only Jesus can save. Only the blood of the Lamb of God can wash away all sin. And I pray that there would be more ethnic Israel singing, Oh, precious is the flow that washes me white as snow. No fount I know, only the blood of Jesus. No one, whether Jew or Gentile, shall attempt to save themselves by their own means or by their own merit, because it all will be the work of futility. For this we thank God and rejoice greatly for having been saved ourselves. 
We know that we do not deserve it. And so we praise his name. We are the remnant saved by grace that Paul speaks about in Romans 11, verse 5. Even now, at the present time, there remains a remnant saved by grace. What a great blessing to know that those of us here who are saved by the blood of the Lamb are among the Israel of God who are saved by grace. We must praise him who so loved us. And we need to be keen to praise him for we know that it is the sovereign grace of a sin abounding, ransomed souls, the tidings swell. This is that you are saved is a tiding. It is a, it is a deep that knows no sounding. It's a deep that no breath or length can tell. It is such a glory that, that uh, each one of us must rejoice with the joy inexpressible having been saved at such a tremendous cost. So brothers and sisters, as I conclude, I pray that we all may stand amazed at Jesus, the Nazarene, and wonder how he could love us, sinners, and condemned, and unclean. And we say, how marvelous. How wonderful that my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. This is the Savior who took my sorrows and made them his very own. He bore the burden of my sin at Calvary and suffered and died alone for me. Is there any better news than this? Is there any better news you've heard than this? No. No. So in eternity, we sing, when ransomed in glory, his face we at last shall see, it will be joy through the angels to sing of his love for us. Let's rise up to sing this today.